Father in heaven, reveal your beauty to us. Draw us into your story. Show us that you are faithful. Lift up the humble and the lowly this morning. And I pray that all of our hearts here would be open to the word that you have to speak to us. That we'd be open to receive the gift that right now in this moment you want to give to us by your word. And that by your Holy Spirit we would then offer back to you the gift of praise and thanksgiving through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What a beautiful story. Um, at the first service, and then again, even now, I'm moved to tears as Deacon Karen was reading Mary's song. And while I was preparing for this sermon, almost every time I sat down and, and read through the scriptures, at, at some point I would begin weeping because of the beauty and the power of this story. And at one point I did co- contemplate chucking the outline and saying, let's just read the story over and over and together we'll ponder and contemplate and weep. And Julie said, that ain't going to happen, Brett. Uh, and she said it in that voice that after eight and a half years, I've come to know, do what she says, submit. Um, but it is a beautiful story, and I do hope that more than anything, Mary and Elizabeth will be honored this morning, and the God who lifts up the humble will be honored and praised and revealed to be the faithful one who keeps his promises. Now, here's the reason we need to hear this message, that God is a God who keeps his promises. We live in a world where promises are not kept. And even when it's unintentional, we're used to people saying they're going to do something and it doesn't happen. No one is 100% always all the time faithful to their word. And so it makes us hard to believe, makes it hard to believe that even God... 100% of the time, every single time, without fail, is faithful and will be faithful. So we need to hear this message that God keeps his promises, right? You've all been that sixth grader waiting after soccer practice, looking down the road this way, looking down the road that way, and at some point you realize, mom and dad forgot. They said they'd pick me up and they forgot. Or how many times now in in my life in in a given week do I say I'll be home at a certain time and then there I am at at the office, I'm looking at the clock and the clock is telling me in three minutes it will be the time that you said you would be home. And I'm thinking, I still got time, I'll just finish this email, go to the bathroom quick, I'll be home in a jiffy. Julie loves that, by the way. And even as recent as a half an hour ago, I told everybody at the first service, Glad you're here. If you're visiting, I'm really excited to meet you. I'll be at the guest center in the back after the service. And guess what? I forgot. I didn't go back there after the first service. So we're used to people saying they're going to do something and then not doing it. Way to go, tall, skinny guy. I'll remember this time. So this story, the beginning of this story, uh, it was important to know what makes this so exciting is that it comes after 400 years of silence. God has not spoken through a prophet for 400 years from the time of Malachi to this time now. And the people of Israel, they've got to be wondering, where are you at? And it's interesting, that 400-year mark, it's the same amount of time that Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And after 400 years, they're asking the same question. God, where are you? Have you forgotten us? What about those promises you made to Abraham? And yet... 
out of those 400 years of silence, God sends an angel. He speaks to Zechariah first, who's the husband of Elizabeth. And he says, you will bear a son. Well, no, your wife will bear a son. Um, But together you will have a son and he will go before the Lord. The Messiah is here. Even though Zechariah and his wife are both old and advanced in years. We don't know if they, like Abraham and Sarah, are technically past childbearing age or if they're just really, really, really old and so it's incredibly unlikely. And yet the angel says, it will happen, and it does. Then the angel goes to Mary and says, and you will bear the Messiah, the promised one, who will be the ruler and his kingdom will have no end. The time is now. Salvation is upon you. And so it's right after the angel's visit to Mary that our text, if you want to go there, in Luke chapter 1, picks up the story. So first thing Mary does, she runs down to Judah, the hill country of Judea, to visit her relative Elizabeth, the one who is pregnant with John the Baptist. And as soon as she enters the home and greets her relative, Elizabeth feels John the Baptist leap for joy in the womb. And Elizabeth herself is filled with the Holy Spirit and she prophesies because Elizabeth knows nothing of what has happened up to this point. She doesn't know the angel has come to Mary. And yet now she's filled with the Holy Spirit. She prophesies and she says, you are great among all women. In fact, scholars agree that the phrase means you are the greatest woman of all time and you will be. And great is the fruit of your womb. And she's prophesying, and you've got to wonder for Mary how confirming and encouraging that would have been. Because between the angel's announcement to Mary and the four or five days of the journey down to Judea, all kinds of things might have been entering into her head. What was that? Was that real? Was that the, I, I believe it, but as soon as she enters, Elizabeth is confirming the word. You are the mother of the Messiah. And it's true that the last 2,000 years of human history have borne it out. Mary is the most honored of all women, ever. And aside from her son, who also was God, so we kind of had that going for him, aside from Jesus, she is the most honored and loved human being of all history. Mary. True are Elizabeth's words. And Elizabeth, rather than comparing herself to Mary and feeling any stitch of jealousy whatsoever, she fully enters into the joy of Mary. I find that incredible because here she's in the presence of one who's receiving an even greater gift, but instead of being jealous, she fully enters and she rejoices. And in this, I think she's foreshadowing the ministry that her son, John, will have. Because as you remember, a few decades later, at the height of his ministry and his influence and his power, John says, it ain't about me. I am not the Christ. In fact, I'm here to point the way to him. There is one among you who is greater than even I. I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. And Elizabeth prefigures that. She foreshadows that by saying, great are you, Mary. She's pointing the way to the greater one. And Mary responds with a song of her own. You magnify me. I magnify the Lord. 
I lift him up because he lifted me up. I praise his name because he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. And she doesn't deny the fact. She rejoices that from now on, all generations will call me blessed. But then she moves beyond herself and she considers, this blessing is not for me alone, it's for my people. And she says, anyone in all generations who fear the Lord receive his mercy. And of course, remember that to fear God does not to be not to be afraid of him the way you would be afraid of a, of a drunken alcoholic dad who's a terror. That's not the fear of God. The fear of God is simply humility. Being humble before God. Humbling ourselves before God. And Mary says anyone in any generation who humbles himself or herself before God is lifted up. He has mercy on those who fear him. He has shown the strength of his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. And he's exalted those of humble estate. Now she's referring to not just herself, but all the people along with her. Because Gabriel, in his message to Mary, says, Your son, the Messiah, will take the throne of David. That throne, at this point, is vacant. It's been occupied by the Romans, so to speak. Israel, they are occupied in their own land. It'd be sort of like if you showed up got home from work one day and your boss had moved into your room. That'd be kind of weird. That's what they're experiencing on a national level. And yet Mary knows now because of the angel's promise that time is coming to an end. The mighty will be cast down from their thrones, the humble lifted up. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. And she closes her song by saying, and all of this is because he remembers He does not forget his mercy and his promise to Abraham and his children forever. So God is faithful and he keeps his promises. So I was saying earlier, you and I, we we forget, don't we? Just this week, uh, each day, Caroline, my four-year-old, was asking, Hey, Papa, could we have sauerkraut with dinner tonight? She loves sauerkraut. And each time I'd say, yeah, sure, we'll put it on the table. And I forget each time. And afterwards, Papa, you forgot the sauerkraut. Sorry, tomorrow I'll, I will remember. And I forget again, right? Again, it's not even intentional. Yet we're limited. We're finite. So we need to remember God keeps his promises and he does not forget. And as Father Stephen is often keen to remind us, when it says God remembers, it's not like he had forgotten and then, oh yeah, now I remember. It's the way the Bible says God acted. He acted on the thing that really he never forgot. He does not forget. He made a promise to Abraham. He said, you will be great. From you will come an entire nation. And through you and through them, I will bless the entire world. And now that story is coming to fulfillment. Because the Messiah is God himself. What greater blessing could come to the world? But God himself. And he does it through Abraham and his people. He also made a promise to David, who was the great king of Israel, the greatest king. And he said to David at the height and the climax of his monarchy, he said, you will never fail to have a son on the throne. And again, if you're living in this time where Mary and Elizabeth are living, they're scratching their heads and they say, what about that promise? Because we have not had a son of David on the throne for 600 years. Where are you? Have you forgotten? And the line of David, it it sort of petered out after the exile and the return of the Jews from Babylon. Who are even the descendants of David? 
Joseph is one, and he's a carpenter working in some backwater provincial town in a hovel of a carpenter shop. That's the descendant of David, or one of them? And yet God is clearly saying in this story, I have not forgotten. I keep my promises. The people of of Israel are waiting in expectation. Now, as we wait for Christmas... It's Friday, it's coming. We know when it is on the calendar, so our anticipation is sort of gauging. We we know to ramp up our anticipation right before the day, and then the day comes and our anticipation will deflate. Uh, Not a bad thing, it's just how it works. But we know when that day is coming. It was different for them. They did not know when the dawn from on high would break upon them. They did not know when the Messiah would come. So perhaps a closer parallel would be like, we're wondering, when is this war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan really going to be over? We've been waiting over a decade now. Or when is this war on terror going to be over? Is it going to get worse before it gets better? And it would be like if an angel came and started announcing a leader is about to arise in the Middle East who will topple ISIS, will bring peace and stability to Syria and Iraq, will dismantle all the terrorist organizations of that entire region before the year is out. That would be good news of great joy. The whole world would be rejoicing. But we don't know when is that going to happen. And now, in a flurry of activity, messages from angels, miraculous births, the people are hearing the news. The Messiah is coming. God is on the move. Aslan is on the move, right? And so this story reminds us that God is faithful. We're going to look at two ways, especially, that God is faithful. First, God is faithful even to the unfaithful. And then second, God is faithful to the nobodies, those of little account in the eyes of this world. So first, God is faithful to the unfaithful. God's faithfulness does not depend on you or me. God's faithfulness depends completely on himself, his own character, because he made a promise, and as he said to Abraham, by myself I have sworn, therefore I will keep it. I don't break my promises. His faithfulness depends upon him, not us, which is a good thing because we're fickle, we're stiff-necked, like the children of Israel, who delivered from slavery in Egypt within a few months are worshiping the golden calf at Mount Horeb. Only a few months. Or Peter, right? On the night that Jesus is betrayed, he's swearing fidelity. No, Jesus, I won't leave you. Even if I have to die, I will stay with you to the end. I'm faithful. And Jesus says, hate to break it to you, man, but like before the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And you and I are the same. How many times have we, at the first sign of personal advantage, hmm, that's a better option for me, Leave. Bail on God or on others. I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but how many of you at some point in your life were in a romantic relationship where once that started, that was so exciting, you kind of forgot about all your other friends. Kind of ditched your friends. We do this. And we do this with God, right? You want something, whether it's popularity sexual fulfillment or a pleasure of some other kind, security or something nice maybe you could buy for yourself, and and yet you know that in order to get this thing that I want, I'm going to have to kind of ignore, pretend that I don't really know some of those rules and commands and the precepts and the, the ways of God. I'll go my own way just for a little while. 
I don't want to totally reject God, but I'll go my own way for a little bit. We've all done this. Every single one of us. And the story of the Bible, in many ways, is a story of a God who is faithful to a people who are not. Faithful God to the unfaithful. And if you're here this morning and you came in thinking, yeah, I don't even know why I'm here at church. I don't think God wants anything to do with me. My sins are too big. I'm too messed up. I've gone too far this time. God does not require you to be completely 100% faithful. He requires you to be humble, right? Mary says, his mercy is on those who fear him, who humble themselves before God and recognize, yeah, I am faithless. I am not 100% faithful. Thanks be to God, you are faithful, Lord. It does not say his mercy is for those who are in the top 30th percentile of not screwing it up. His mercy is on those who fear him in every generation. So his faithfulness does not depend on our faithfulness. He is faithful because he made a promise. Second, God is faithful even to those who are of little account in the eyes of the world, to the nobodies, to the B team. In fact, God is not only able to exercise his faithfulness to the nobodies and through the nobodies, he prefers it. Mary and Elizabeth both are two women of little account. First of all, because they're women living in the first century. That's not going to get you very far on your own. And Mary, we understand, is poor. We know this because in the next chapter, when she offers the sacrifices required for the purification after childbirth, she offers two pigeons for the sacrifice. Luke records that in chapter 2. Well, if we go back and look at the law, it says you are to offer a lamb for the purification of childbirth. Unless you're really poor, then you can offer two pigeons. So we know Mary is really poor. And Elizabeth is a woman of no account in the eyes of others because she is barren. And yet it is Elizabeth and it is Mary that God chooses. He lifts up those of a humble and lowly estate. It reminds me of what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, brothers, sisters, remember who you were before you were called. Not many of you were wise or powerful or of noble birth. But remember, God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's how he accomplishes his purpose in this world. He feeds the hungry with good things. It's the rich that he sends away empty. And yeah, human strength and human greatness, being great in my own eyes or being great in the eyes of others, that can in fact be the greatest barrier between knowing God and his love for us. And there are some of you here today, you are missing out on a deeper experience of the fullness of God's love for you because you refuse to repent of your arrogance. I say this out of love. And I say this as a recovering narcissist. Okay. Sometimes the mighty one who needs to be cast down from their throne, it's me, it's you. Sitting in the pride of my heart, thinking great things about myself, judging and criticizing others, comparing myself to others, and of course, always coming to the conclusion that somehow I'm right. They're just a little bit off. We do this even with our closest friends, right? We agree on most things, but not on that, and I know I'm right. And so secretly we kind of judge. And we do this, and we think, well, 
it's not a big deal because I'm not telling other people about it. It's, it's just in, in the thoughts of my heart. Mary says, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He sees even our arrogant thoughts, the judgments that we constantly make of others, the ways that we're always defending ourselves and justifying ourselves and in our minds tearing down others so that we can feel better about ourselves. There was a time when, when I was cast down from the throne. Uh, it was soon after school. I was young. I was, it was early on in ministry. And I, I thought I knew everything. Not that that happens with everybody who's fresh out of school. I'm not saying that that is the case. But it certainly was the case for me. I thought I knew everything. I thought I kind of had my life together. And one of the signs that maybe I was in trouble and this was disconcerting even at the time, was I realized I had a hard time praying the prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I had a hard time asking for mercy. And something told me, that's not quite right. But I just, I didn't really connect with that prayer. And then Lent of that year, and of course it's God's timing, of course it was Lent, there was no accident there. God met me in an incredibly powerful way, and he laid me low. And he started to show me how foolish it is to be wise in my own eyes. He started to show me just how much I yet had to learn. And I came down from the mighty throne and became one who, at least a little bit more, is of little account in my own eyes. You see, God doesn't need our strength. He doesn't need our greatness. In fact, he prefers those who are of little account in the eyes of the world, the nobodies. And if that's you this morning, if you are feeling that you are in a humble estate, for whatever reason, if, if it's health stuff it's got you down, relationship stuff has got you down, job stuff, or if it's school, you're rejected by the other kids, and you're in that place of humble estate, the, the Lord has good news to say to you this morning through Mary's song. He says, I fill the hungry with good things. I see you. I have not forgotten you. And the invitation still stands. You are invited to come and feast at my table. I will fill you with good things. I'll fill you with my own presence. And that invitation stands today, even now, for anyone who has the courage and the faith to take me at my word. He says, I see you. I have not forgotten. Will you trust that I'm faithful? So as we come to the conclusion, that's what he wants from us, of course. He wants us to respond in faith. He wants us to respond in faith to his faithfulness. He wants to trust. He wants us to trust in him. That's what it means to have faith, to believe that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. You know, I can always tell when my girls are telling the truth, my four-year-olds, because, well, one, if they're lying, it's really obvious. They do the whole, like, looking up to the ceiling and it's clear that they're lying. But I can also tell when they're telling the truth, if I'm not fully believing them, they get really indignant. Right? Caroline, are you sure you didn't eat that second cookie? No, Papa, I didn't. Now they're four. So I, I don't think that they're able to fake being indignant for the sake of you know, getting out of something. So their indignancy, I don't know if that's a real word, but being indignant is genuine, and that's usually a clue to me. Okay, I, I think they're really telling the truth. And here's why that... That matters. They're saying, I know that I'm telling the truth and it hurts me 
that you don't trust me. That's why they get indignant. And I wonder if maybe God is a little bit like a four-year-old. Don't take that out of context, right? I wonder if he's saying, I know that I'm faithful to you. I know that I haven't forgotten you. I know that I still love you. But when you doubt that, when you do not believe me fully, you're saying that I'm not faithful. And we say, no, God, I I know you're faithful. I'm not saying that, or I don't mean to say that. And he's saying, but that's what you're saying. It's why Jesus, more than any of his other rebukes to the disciples, he said, where is your faith? Where is your faith? You lack faith. And I always read those stories, and at first, you know, he kind of sounded like this scolding old schoolmaster who's like marking down his students, like mark down for John, two marks down for Peter. Where is your faith? But now that I look at it from this angle, I think I see more a friend who's just upset that his friends don't get who he is. Fellas, do you really think I'm going to let you drown? What kind of Messiah do you take me for? Believe that I am who I say I am and I will do what I say I will do. And Mary, of course, is our example in this. She shows us incredible faith. She was chosen not for her virtue or the purity of her heart. I'm sure she was virtuous. I'm sure she was pure of heart. But when we look at what Elizabeth says, Elizabeth says, blessed are you because you believed. You believed what God spoke to you. Not because you were virtuous or pure of heart. That's not why God chose Mary. He chose her for the same reason he chose Abraham. What did Abraham do? He believed. God saw both Abraham and Mary a heart that was ready and able to believe impossible things. And what Gabriel told Mary was truly perhaps the most impossible thing anybody could have ever been asked to believe. You will bear a son, even though you're a virgin. And not only will he be, uh, you know, the Messiah, he's actually going to be the son of God. He will bear the kingdom of God. You're going to give birth to the kingdom of God. And she believed him. She did not doubt. Sometimes we get confused because if you know the story, uh, when the angel comes to Zechariah, he says, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. And he says, how will I know this since we're both old? And the angel gets really mad, says, you will be struck dumb until the child is born because you did not believe me. Then Mary says almost the exact same words. She says, after the angel says, you will have a son who will be the Messiah, she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And so if you're wondering, well, wait a minute, isn't isn't that kind of doubting? Just let me clear that up for you. Mary, being a virgin, is totally believing, okay, I know I'm going to have the Messiah, but are you asking me to sin in order to accomplish that? That's what she's confused about. How shall I proceed? How shall I go forward? Because the only way I know how to have a son is to lay with a man, and I'm not married. Are you asking me to do that? And the angel says, no, no, no. The power of the the Most High will overshadow you. So Mary's question of, of how will this be is not of like, how can this be? This is impossible. But rather, what do you need me to do? Because of course, after the angel explains it, she says, let it be to me. I am the Lord's servant. And God wants to see faith in our hearts because it proves that we know he is faithful. Just like you or me, God wants to be known for who he really is. Just just like you want to be known for who you are, God wants to be known as the one who is faithful and true. So right now, I want to take a minute to give you a chance to 
let the Holy Spirit minister. So close your eyes. And ask yourself, or rather, let the Spirit, let that search light of the Holy Spirit pierce your, your mind and your heart and ask you, is there anywhere in your life, in your faith, where you are not fully trusting God? Where you're not fully believing that He is faithful and He will be faithful to you? Is there any area where you have anxiety or fear or sadness or where you're asking the question, God, are you really able? God, have you forgotten? I spend too long. Now it's too late for me. Or if you're asking the question, will I have enough to get through? Enough money? Or enough strength to get through this next season? Or enough ability or energy or health? Will you give me what I need? And you're realizing, yeah, I, I don't fully trust that he will in this area. Now's the time to take that. Just in the imagination of your hearts, offer that to the Lord. Picture yourself before the cross. And you're reaching your hands up to him. And in your heart, pray with me this prayer. Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I trust you. I know I don't always believe it all the time, but right now I declare you are faithful and you will be faithful. Jesus, I trust you. You can open your eyes. And My charge to the congregation this week is very simple. This week, and great, you know, for the rest of your life, that'd be awesome too, but, you know, this week is a more reasonable time frame. This week, anytime you feel anxiety or fear, or you are recognizing, yeah, this is a place where I'm not fully trusting God, I want you to pray that prayer again. Just close your eyes and in the quiet of your heart say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you with this. Jesus, I trust you. All right? That's our task this week. It's a simple one. Simple to understand, but really to believe 100% of the time God is faithful. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are faithful to us and that you are the God who lifts up those who are cast down. That your faithfulness does not depend on our earning or deserving it, but out of grace you have come to rescue us and bring us to yourself. And I pray here this morning that anyone who is feeling of low estate, who is humbled by their circumstances or who is sitting in the fear of you, that you would lift them up and minister your closeness and your care, your gospel. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk more and more every day in, in believing that you are faithful. So increase faith in our hearts. Help us to be a faith-filled church. Lord, we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.